The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I want to invite uh, Lindsay Guerrero to come up here. She's going to be our speaker this morning. And I've learned that long introductions are a bit of a, a, a risky business. So I want to keep this very short. But let me tell you something that, that I personally have encountered here in, uh, in growing in fellowship with Lindsay. Uh, one, I had a, a relationship with her wonderful husband, Pastor Jared, for, for years. And then Lindsay came onto the scene. And I, I always wondered, how could Pastor Jared get any better? I've got one word for you, Lindsay. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you something. This woman is wall-to-wall sunshine, and, and it, it is not because there's never been a cloud in her skies. It's because of Jesus, and there's no doubt about that. So I'm excited to, for her to get into the Word and, and be on the front row here taking notes. I'm going to hand the microphone to her, but I'm going to ask you to give a warm champion's welcome to Lindsay Guerrero. Thank you, sir. Well, I, I appreciate that. It, I mean, I think about, I can't believe it's been, let me do math almost four years since I first stepped into this sanctuary. I know, because it feels like just uh, the blink of an eye and also so much life and growth has happened here with you that I'm so grateful for. Um, so today I'm happy to get to share some of the meditations that God has brought to my attention this week, and I hope that they're a blessing for you. And more than anything, one of the things I love about sharing God's word is that God's Word is always a conversation starter, <laughs> that no matter how many times we come to God's Word, no matter how many times we read the same passages over and over again, we always find something different. And so I hope today you'll have the experience that I did of finding something new in a passage that I've read many times before. Um, and Sherry, your word was so perfect today because something that's been on my heart is how God speaks to us in unexpected times and how his timing is bigger than our imagination because God's imagination is so much bigger than ours. I know that because I fell in love with a boy from Abilene while I was living in San Francisco who I met on YouTube. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> so before I open us with a word of prayer, I want to just dive into the scripture for today, read it all the way through. It's pretty lengthy, um, but I want to have it in the back of our minds as we go forward with just some of the things that I noticed. So the scripture is the road to Emmaus. It's in the chapter or in the book of Luke, chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 30. So if you have your Bibles or your digital Bibles on your phone, that's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 30. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to, the, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place, and in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went out to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now he said to him, Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and your scriptures, knowing that you speak to us through it, knowing that we can always rely on your spirit to teach us through the words that you've laid out. So God, today, as we study this scripture, I pray that you will open each of our hearts and minds to see what you would have us learn. God, I pray that your spirit would speak the loudest in this room. And through all things, Lord, I pray that you will knit together the things you have to teach us and show us so that we can become beacons of your light in this world. So we pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I was reading about this story of travelers, I started thinking about how much I love to travel. Some of you know that already, just tracking Jared and my journey. <laughs> so we are two people who love to explore this world, and that is something I inherited from my family, my dad, who's here. Um, we are people who love to travel and explore. And as I was thinking about some of the formative travel experiences I've had, I've been so blessed by God to have had many experiences to see many different parts of this world. I remembered that I was really lucky that in the there was a three-week period between when I finished my chaplaincy residency and when I started working as a chaplain full-time that I got to go tour Europe with my parents, just the three of us, and explore Italy, um, so Rome, Florence, and Malta, of all places. We sort of just happened into Malta, added on an extra week, and thought, why not? We're close. (laughs) So... A mere three hours after I finished my ordination exams, I'm ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and your ordination exams are sort of like the bar exam for Presbyterian ministers. (laughs) So three hours after three days of writing, I hopped a plane and went to Europe. Um, And on that trip especially, I learned that there is a difference between travelers and tourists. Now, When I jostled (laughs) through the packed crowds to try and get a picture of the Spanish steps, or when I used my short height and managed to whittle my way to the front of a pack of people in front of the statue of David to get a picture there, or I admit, when in my first night in Malta, I ordered a burger and fries just because I was so desperate (laughs) for American food from room service. (laughs) Then I was a tourist. But... 
when I sat in a Maltese cafe with an, a family who had had that cafe for literally decades, maybe even hundreds of years, and learned about their life and their history and who they were, or when I explored the streets of Rome by myself, just taking in all the culture, or even more, <laughs> when I was in a monastery in Florence, and a monk came up to me and asked me in the most sincere, broken English what San Francisco is like. Then, then I was a traveler. So in our lives, I think we constantly vacillate between being travelers and tourists, but I am seeing in my own life that when we really practice our faith, when we really are in tune with God's will, I think we are less like tourists in this world and more like travelers. And as much as I love that picture of Michelangelo's David and as much as I loved that burger and fries <laughs> when I was in Malta, I think God calls us to travel and not just tour through our lives. And I think this story, the story of what happens to the disciples after the crucifixion, the story of Jesus revealing himself and calling on us to join him for the journey, this in many ways is a story about becoming less like tourists and more like travelers. All that being said, <laughs> I had some joyful memories as a traveler, but sometimes being a traveler surprises us. Sometimes it's not exactly what we thought it would look like. Um, in all of my travel stories and travel stories I've seen and travel stories I've read, I can tell you I have never heard a single account that said, I started my journey and everything went according to plan. Has anyone ever had a journey exact, right? <laughs> Has anyone in the mission field who's gone on a mission trip can tell you no mission journey starts that way? And I'm looking at these two. I know you guys just went to Paris, and I've already heard stories that did not go according to plan, right? Um, on the contrary, our travelers are fraught with changes in plans. They're governed by the unexpected. Um, when people travel, they get lost. They lose their passports, they get food poisoning. Sorry, Jared <laughs> experienced maybe something similar to that recently. They lose their way, they trip and fall. They fall in love and they discover new roads and discover new friends and they say goodbye to old ways and learn new ways and on and on and on and on. So in short, as travelers, nothing ever goes according to plan and there's something beautiful in that. So during, <laughs> when I was thinking about all of this, during my first year of seminary, one of my favorite professors introduced a quote to me that has stayed with me throughout my entire career, especially as a hospital and a hospice chaplain. And the quote is from a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. And Walter Brueggemann said, God draws straight with crooked lines. God draws straight with crooked lines. In the stories I've heard of other people's travel and my own, the stories of the unexpected, the stories where the lines get crooked from our perspective, those unexpected moments are usually the doorway to greater joy and understanding. And the practice of faith for you and for me seems to be about traveling those lines, however crooked they may seem to us, and doing it with earnest, honoring each step for its holiness. I want to 
go into the scripture, but before we do that, I want to take, back a step, take a step back and talk a little bit about the context. I've said this here before, um, but I think it's always worth saying again. One of the things that I treasure so deeply in my biblical studies is that God is all-powerful. God could have revealed himself in any place, <laughs> in any time, in any context, in any country, in any culture. I don't think he just spun a wheel and said, I'm gonna reveal myself in the person of Jesus Christ in ancient Israel. I think God chose that on purpose. I think there's a reason for that. And so thinking that, I always think it's important to ask questions about the culture that the story happened in, to ask questions about the history, <laughs> to ask questions about the social location to help us better understand what God wanted to reveal to us. So taking a step back, and talking about the Gospel of Luke specifically, one of the things that I hold in my heart as I read any of the Gospels, really, um, is that these original hearers of the Gospel, the people who heard it for the first time, most likely, rather than read it, um, the original hearers of the Gospel were a community in distress, right? That the earliest Christians didn't look like us with all the freedom in the world <laughs> to talk about what we believe. The earliest Christians were a marginalized group who faced persecution, not just from the Roman Empire, right? That was already the most powerful thing in the world. They weren't big fans of Christians. But they also faced persecution from the people who they experienced as fellow Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The earliest Christians weren't just really marginalized, they were in danger. So, and even more than that, the earliest Christians, they were built on a promise that had not yet come to fruition. And that promise is the major promise that we know, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ has, will come again, which is a beautiful promise. Now, when we hear that, I'm sure all of us hear that, we know it's true. We know that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. When we hear that in contemporary Christendom, we also understand that it's a someday promise. We understand that we may not see it in the course of our lifetime, but it doesn't make it any less true. For the earliest Christians, the one for whom the gospel was originally heard and written, they thought it wasn't, they didn't think of it as a someday promise. They really thought it was a no now in our lifetime. It is well documented that the earliest Christians thought we will see Jesus come again and bring about his kingdom in our lifetime. So imagine what it felt like when that wasn't happening. And imagine what it felt like when not only was that promise not coming to the fruition in the timeline that we expected, but also you were under a lot of persecution and danger. That's hard for me to even wrap my brain around. So I think these earliest followers of Jesus occupied a very in-between space. They were living in a very in-between time. And that's something that I, not in that context, but I think about what it's like to live in an in-between space a lot because I work as a hospital chaplain. Um, one of the things that I cherish, that I just absolutely cherish, about working in healthcare as a chaplain um, is over the course of my 17 and a half, math, yes, 17 and a half year career as a chaplain, um, I just, Recently, I was talking with someone about this, but I've always felt this way since I started working as a chaplain, is I think of hospitals, which is primarily where I've worked, as before and after places. Meaning that 
<laughs> our physical buildings of our hospitals and even our hospices, I've worked in hospice before, are places where people will start to measure their lives in before this happened and after this happened. We all have before and after moments in our lives. And I think hospitals are so fascinating and holy and blessed in a way that the physical space of our hospitals, you have people experiencing before and after moments on every single spectrum. Some of them are incredibly joyful, <laughs> like when a baby is born or when a long-awaited diagnosis or cure happens. And of course, we also know that some of the before and after moments are not as joyful. They're full of heartache, like when you get a really challenging diagnosis or when someone passes away. I, I felt that way about hospitals for a long time. But I got to see that holy aspect of healthcare and working in hospitals really concretely myself um, this last summer when my mom passed away. My dad remembers with me that my mom passed away in June and we were so lucky that she was cared for so beautifully and we got to be there with her at the end of her life. I will never forget <laughs> that at the exact moment my mother took her last breath, a lullaby played over the hospital overhead. Just like Hendrick does where I work, this hospital plays a lullaby every time a baby is born. So literally at the same moment that my mom left this world, someone entered this world. And I was so keenly aware in that moment of how both of those moments were equally holy, both of those moments had equal worth, and both of those moments were equally heart-filling. The holy aspect of these places, I think, comes from their in-between quality. Um, I think of medical centers and just our lives in general, but medical centers especially, I think of them as liminal spaces. Liminal comes from the Latin word meaning threshold. And so I obviously see it every day that in hospitals we're constantly walking this threshold between new life and death and a different kind of new life. Um, and walking alongside people in the in-between isn't a responsibility that I take lightly. And so I often ask myself, how does God call us to live and serve in liminal spaces, in in-between spaces? How does he call us to serve him not when we have reached our destination, but when the way is still being prepared? When I think about liminal spaces in the Bible, this story of the road to Emmaus, I think is one of the most liminal stories we see in our gospel. Because this story occurs after Jesus has died and after his resurrection, but before his followers really understand what is happening. This part of the story is where the lines must have felt very, very crooked, right? So I want to go back into the passage. If you have your Bibles open still, that's Luke 24, uh, verses 13 through 33. So the passage begins with, now on that same day. So that day was the day that the women went to the tomb with their burial spi spices prepared. And first, <laughs> they found that the stone had been ro rolled away and Jesus wasn't there. So they showed up re ready to anoint Jesus' body, but the stone was rolled away and Jesus was gone. And second... They were visited by angels 
who asked that beautiful question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? I think that's such a beautiful part of our scripture. Um, and so the women actually go back and tell the disciples what they heard. They do not believe the women. <laughs> so even though they were told what happened, um, they were still doubtful. And I say that I have a lot of humility. I am really 99% sure that if I were in that situation, I would be more like the disciples than the women. I try and ground myself in that understanding of myself. <laughs> so when the scripture starts on that day, that's the day it's referring to. So we meet these travelers um, on the road to Emmaus, three days after Jesus has died. And as you can imagine, they are completely wrecked with grief. Um, these two travelers are identified as followers of Christ, even though we don't meet them in the gospel until this point. This is the first time that at least Cleopas is named, the other remains unnamed. Um, but they believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And as such, they had expectations of him, expectations which most certainly did not include his violent death on a cross and to add injury to, or insult to injury, his body disappearing without a trace three days later. They have had more than a change of plans. <laughs> These followers of Jesus are representative of all of the earliest followers of Jesus. They felt like their messianic hope had crashed right in front of their eyes. And so crestfallen and hopeless, I can imagine they walked that road to Emmaus, seven mile road, by the way, feeling as if all of the lines were crooked beyond repair. Yet it is precisely at that moment, when we see it in the scripture, that Jesus comes up alongside him, disguised as a stranger. One of the things I think is really interesting, in Greek, the word for stranger um, comes from two different words. The, the word is par oikos. Par means outside. Oikos means house. So to be a stranger means to be outside the house, which is a really powerful image to me when you think about how they recognize Jesus when he, they invite him into the house. Yeah, right? <laughs> Um, so, of course, the added irony of the story is that the travelers are caused not to recognize Jesus, and in the Greek text, the nature of Jesus' engagement with the travelers is almost comically casual, like the way the, the text is written in Greek, the language is very informal, very light, that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. And in the literal Greek, when he comes alongside them and asks, what are you talking about? In Greek, it says, what are these words you are pitching back and forth to each other? So not just not talking, but just, you know, tossing around some information, which helps me understand why they may have stopped in their tracks. <laughs> right? Can you imagine talking about losing all of your messianic hope and someone goes like, hey, what are you gabbing about? <laughs> that, I think, is what stops them in their tracks. And they are shocked that the stranger doesn't know what had already happened. So what they end up doing is that the <laughs> Cleopas steps up and in, in the, the Greek, it says gloomily, and according, um, according to the story, gives Jesus a summary of Jesus' own death. <laughs> and Jesus, still disguised as a stranger, he counters with a teaching moment. He teaches the travelers about who Jesus was and how he fits into God's story for creation on a whole. As they continue the journey down the road, they keep walking. And then you saw the climax of the story. They arrive in Emmaus and invite Jesus to stay with them. And it's at the breaking of the bread that they finally understand who Jesus is. When Jesus was a par oikos outside of the house and they bring him into the house, they understand who he is. Now, what I love about this story, 
there's so many things really, but one of the things that I really love is that at the end, the travelers come full circle, right? They left Jerusalem grieving a savior, grieving a story which they thought had gone horribly awry. And in the end, they retraced their steps back to Jerusalem, proclaiming the risen Christ because of the detour they took to Emmaus. God draws straight with crooked lines. And there's something else I wanted to point out to you about this story that I didn't notice the first time I read the text and when I went back and was getting ready for today, I noticed it. Did you notice that Jesus was able to teach the followers before they recognized him? That before they recognized him, Jesus was still able to teach them. That before they knew Jesus was with them, they were able to learn from him and invite him into their home. That is so powerful for me to think about in my own life. <laughs> because I am sure that all of us can tell a story about a period of adversity we went through, or just any season of our life, where in retrospect we go back and we can see all the ways God was teaching us in those experiences, even when we weren't exactly sure where he was. Over the summer, I had an experience <laughs> of how God may be working with us and teaching us before we know he is there. When I was back home in San Diego helping my dad prepare for his move to Abilene, um, I had, was helping him pack and was going through my college journals, which for some reason I made you keep in my childhood bedroom <laughs> still. <laughs> but I, has anyone ever gone back and read journals that they've kept in their lives? It's a really interesting archaeology of the soul when you go back and read your journals, <laughs> especially as from someone, for me, these were my college journals. It was 20 years ago. Um, and some of the entries were, some of them were very sweet. Like there was one where I wrote, Dear God, I hope you serve, I serve you well in my life and always do your will. Lovely. And others were embarrassing, and I'm going to share this because this is a safe space. <laughs> this is a real one. Dear God, please let my skin clear up before the camp is formal. Amen. Right? <laughs> I am 40 years old and still get acne, so God has his own timing, I guess, about that. <laughs> I actually wrote that down, and I was so sincere about it. Um, but there was one theme that I saw during a really specific time in college that really stood out to me. And I was reading journals from a time in college where I was very sick. Many of you know that I have epilepsy and my seizures were really bad when I was in college. And part of the reason I'm a chaplain is I logged weeks <laughs> in hospitals, which taught me about the value of chaplains. Um, and so these journals were from the pocket of time that I was really ill. And I felt really far away from God, really far away from God for a long time. God wasn't showing up for me the way I thought he used to. And I had a lot of questions about that. And so during that time, some of the journal entries I were reading looked like this. I would write almost every day, God, I feel so far away from you. Where are you? Why aren't you showing up for me anymore? And then I would write immediately after. I kid you not, this is what the structure of these, these journal entries were. Thank you, God, so much for my family and my friends. They are amazing, and I couldn't get through this without my community. Reading through those journals <laughs> and seeing my prayers to God, 
over and over again. I wanted to reach into those pages and say, Lindsay, <laughs> how did you not see it? <laughs> you thought that the lines were crooked beyond repair, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't showing up for you. I actually wrote it down that he was. I wanted to say to my little 20-year-old self, like, Lindsay, just look around. <laughs> God is there. I want to close with something that I've noticed about how Jesus shows up in our lives another way, especially when he works miracles in the Bible. I love looking at the miracle stories in the Bible, in the Gospels. I had a realization in the last few months about the miracle stories in the Bible. Miracles like Jesus healing people, turning a loaf of bread and a few fish into a meal that could feed hundreds or thousands, and even Jesus being raised from the dead. I realized when I read the miracle stories in the Bible that I tend to read them cinematically. <laughs> like, that I put a subconscious experience on them. Like, for example, when I read some of the miracle stories, I realized that I was sort of subconsciously inserting a crowd of people who are ooing and eyeing at everything that Jesus does, and while the miracles play out on some sort of giant public stage with the John Williams soundtrack swelling perfectly underneath the drama, right? That was, I realized that's how I read the miracle stories. By my count, there are 37 miracle stories in the gospel. 37, 37 examples of when Jesus works a miracle. Out of those 37, 15 are witnessed by large crowds in large public spaces. No John Williams soundtrack, it didn't exist. But only 15 are witnessed by the large crowds I imagine. The other 22 miracles, they were only witnessed by a few people at most. So the miracles of Jesus walking on water, of raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, of calming the storm, of healing the leper, and his very first recorded miracle of turning water into wine, those miracles had a vast impact, had a huge impact. But they themselves happened in quiet and private moments. They were relatively unwitnessed. Today, you all may be looking at your lives and searching for evidence of God's miraculous work, and you may feel like you're coming up dry. But I think what the scripture reveals to us time and time and time again, and what these travelers on the road to Emmaus teach us, is that even if you do not witness God at work firsthand in your life, he is still faithfully working miracles around you. And even if you don't, do not understand how or where he is teaching, he is walking alongside you and teaching you. And even when you think you've reached a dead end where the lines seem irrevocably crooked, he is leading you. God draws straight with crooked lines and he is drawing something so beautiful in you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this community of believers. I thank you for how you've called us to be people who show the beauty and the unexpected in the world. God, today I, help, I pray that you will help us to be travelers, not tourists. 
I pray that you'll help us to be people who journey alongside those who need it the most. And always, Lord, I pray that we would become smaller so you could become bigger. So let us be changed through what you have to teach us. And we pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.